What follows is a dialogue between myself and Toby about the life and times of Director Thomas Arlington of the NIA. These are our thoughts about his world and his efforts as we travel through space and time, through the window. Once more, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, so let's continue on. At this point in the story, this is where it, it shifts a little bit. And the book itself acknowledges that because it's saying something that was not included in the first printing was a personal account of the man behind the writing of this book. Yeah. And who is at, Thomas Arlington? Yes, exactly so. And why. Who are you, and why should we pay attention to anything you have to say there, son? You know, that that sort mm. of mentality going on, I guess you could say. Like, I don't take kindly to being read to. <laughs> One of the things that was eventually going to come up in Arlington is a little bit about some of the reasons why things were picked out to be the way they were. And as established by the diegetic version of the Cartographer's Handbook, as in not simply the one that you, the audience, is reading, but that the audience inside the world is reading, is that the Cartographer's Handbook isn't just like, you know, this plain thing that like was like a textbook that you might find in a store or something like that. It has a name associated with it, that being Thomas Arlington. And while in the first edition of it, it didn't have that many details about who was this person that the president had apparently trusted a lot of power and responsibility to. And now this newer version has an account of the author. And one of the things that's immediately revealed is that he's a black man. Considering some of the places that the cartographers are going to have to go, people are going to have complicated responses to that. The handbook itself knows that people are going to have complicated responses to that because some of those early stories are... It, it, they basically reflect a little bit on some of the crappy opinions that white people had at the time of their black neighbors mm. and all that sort of thing. It shows examples of the original sightings of the Wendigo being attributed to the, the, black, the black, black community. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and from there, you know, it'd be like, okay, now I've told you who I am. Based on everything that I've said beforehand, you're going to be hopefully okay with this because it sounds like I'm giving cogent advice and that I actually have a good plan, regardless of who came up with it. Mm. And I have, more importantly, I have the support of the president, who, hey, is a white man. Mm. Mm. Um, it's very uh, very uh, reminiscent of what... Um, uh, oh, my God, I'm blanking on the actor's name. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on a lot tonight, but um, in The Hateful Eight... Uh, 
Yeah. Well, how can I forget Nick Fury? Um, <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, that's it. Uh, his character in The Hateful Eight has the Lincoln letter, which is essentially this letter he'll show to get anyone who he walks past across to be like, oh man, you really got a letter from Lincoln? That's amazing. And mm. later on in the film, it's revealed that it's a complete fabrication and someone who was taken on like aback by the letter who read it and got very teary eyed feels quite betrayed by it. And it's like, so, you know, why do you sell me that shit? And Samuel Jackson's character just says quite pointedly, well, it got me on that stagecoach, didn't it? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what is, I think it very important there. And this is, a gamble for Arlington to divulge this information. And you can tell that it's not one that he leapt fully into because this wasn't available in the original edition of the book. You know, in secret rooms, we see a moment in time when that information wasn't public knowledge yet. And Annie gets really cagey with Abigail for like sharing that information. Now, this is new to me. I only found it out a few days ago talking to a friend, and it don't say nothing about it in the book. But this director Arlington, the man who put all of this together, the man at the very tippity top, well, he's a former slave, a Negro. At this, Oakley looked sharply at Abigail, but the deed was done. The cat was out of the bag now, and I confess I was rather surprised at this revelation myself. Captain can confirm this one, right? It's not commonly known information, but Private Gray is correct. It's one of those things where it's essentially like, okay, by kind of like leaving myself vulnerable to that, by sharing that, hopefully this will be kind of a element of trust or it's Mm. grounds for trust on that. But nevertheless, it is deliberately positioned at the end of the book. It's Mm. not sort of something that's put up front because I think that they want to the words to kind of get people on board before that information is made known to them. Yeah, one of the things that I wasn't originally on the talking schedule, but something that came up as a result of conversations in the New Century Discord were specifically that Where all good conversation on New Century happens. Join yes. today. sorry that was our sponsored content for this episode our code for the new century discord is ttwd21 (laughs) you get 20 percent off no 20 percent off free is still free yeah it's better than free yeah it's better it's 20 percent off free yeah (laughs) you can't beat that I mentioned this on the Discord the other day, but in the middle of editing in the clip from Secret Rooms, I suddenly realized that Toby and I really screwed the pooch the other day with Maureen. I take full responsibility because I looked up all the major characters to refer back to and make questions about, and utterly forgot that we didn't cover or have any questions regarding her portrayal of Mary Sampson. So given we're in regular contact with her, some of us more than others for no particular reason, I may have her back on soon to discuss that and any other questions that I can think of that I missed. 
make a little mini-interview out of it. So yes, the conversation that was happening was, uh, I was asking Alex if the artwork that was present in the printed version, in, in like, you know, the ebook version that I had, uh, was that diegetic or not? Was that artwork that was there for the modern audience, or was that artwork that was actually in the handbook that cartographers would potentially show off to interested parties? Mm. And he confirmed that, yes, that they're part of the reason why these are all not like full-color photographs or anything like that, is that the this, this sketch version of the pictures of the Wendigo and everything like that were probably easier to reproduce using the the tools and the printing press that they had to hand and everything. Yeah, it's but, not going to be their most like refined or intricate printing presses, is it? No, and, and honestly, I actually have no idea what the level of technology at the time was for in regards to reproducing the handbook, how mm. those actually came. I mean, I, I imagine the number of ones that they would have had to put together, they weren't all handcrafted or anything like that. Although, Alex, if you want us to correct us on that, please do. And it also encompasses this weird sort of middle point, because as has been kind of revealed a little bit in Secret Rooms, and you'll see a lot more of in Arlington, the level of technology that is available to the RSA is complicated. There hmm. are steampunk elements in there showing that they have access to some very fine minds that have come up with various kinds of tools and other technology that like i haven't done like a comparison to modern history or anything like that some of it is going to be equivalent for the time and some of it is going to feel like light years ahead the vox tubes in particular i'm pretty sure as they exist right now, they didn't necessarily have something of equal capacity for recording people's voices, at least in that compact form and everything like that. That said, I ended up doing a little digging. As it turns out, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph in 1877, one of the most sophisticated types of recording devices at the time. Well, literally one of the only kinds of recording devices at the time. And that would fit into the timeline of New Century between the first Wendigo outbreak and the current year of 1883. Long-term fans of the series know that Edison does show up as a character in Arlington, which could potentially explain why the invention of the Vox tube exists, although we never actually see a rendition of what one looks like in the book. But on top of that, looking at images of the phonograph shows that it's fairly large. 18 inches by 8 inches by 12 inches. It's the size of a bread box, and I'm not even sure those measurements include the massive-seeming speaking horn. My point is, James and Abigail were carrying two Vox tubes on their person, suggesting that they were compact and easily portable, while the phonograph seems cumbersome thereby strongly suggesting that the Vox tube is far more sophisticated than what they would have had at the time under normal circumstances, let alone the conditions that would have made access to resources and technology difficult in New Century. But, 
we'll get more into the why of the better technology later. So, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe the RSA has access to people that make better printing presses. We don't know necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that that's getting off point a little bit. But the point of that artwork being in the cartographer's handbook is that it's kind of a little bit part of that entire conversation of is this propaganda or not and the way that alex kind of outlined it is that yes these were basically included such that we're trying to make people aware of just how dangerous the wendigo actually are he he included some images that were taken from World War II. And by this, I mean he showed samples of propaganda posters on the Discord. But also even, like, some propaganda from other parts of history. Some of it really created, and some of it sort of fictionally created, that was meant to make people afraid of black men or afraid of controversial concepts like vaccination. Yeah, exactly. What a terrifying idea. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? So, yeah. You know, like, you know what uh, would be actually terrifying? Like, just take that same piece of that propaganda and add in in scribbled text, not vaccinated. Ah! Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly so. Um, but, but again, keep, keeping on the subject, because we keep getting yes. off the subject, mm. the idea that these horrifying accounts of the Wendigo, it's it's meant to be there being like, clearly, this is the monster, this is the enemy. It's mm. an enemy that we can face, but this is the thing that you need to be afraid of. And then much later in the book, around the time that we're starting to talk about here, we have a very cultured, very dignified photo of Thomas Arlington himself. And one mm, could consider the two of them almost the contrast. A yeah, exactly. The contrast yeah. taking place there. Yeah, um, that's actually a very good point. There mm-hmm. is that that's very deliberate. Mm-hmm. It's also, I think, important that they create these images of the Wendigo because as much as I think the idea is that most people alive will have come across and even have their own words for the Wendigo. This is a number of years into a world where these things exist and their encounters with them are probably like fleeting and few and far between, which means that, you know, like they've had to survive this long and they will, you know, come across them regularly enough. But I think the idea is that you kind of need an image that people can hold on to that isn't just like experienced in the moment, but is we're establishing the word on what these creatures are, because I don't think when everyone's been so focused on themselves, anyone's going to be creating images of what these creatures look like. So to kind of control the image of this enemy, it really does control the ideas of the people that you're trying to bring in through this book. Mm. 
Yeah, basically. Oh, and finally, the remaining parts of the book are, you know, people would be like, well, what? how is the rest of the world faring? Maybe we don't have to stick around here. Maybe we can just leave America entirely. Well, now Arlington is saying, look, based on the information that we have, things are not safe other places either. Like, we've completely lost contact with the West, and as far as on the other side of the ocean, sure, we haven't encountered any Wendigo that are, like, particularly aquatic or anything like that, but it, by all accounts, particularly since a lot of the infection came over on ships from, you know, Europe, basically, that they have Wendigo over there, and it's really not any better over there either. So mm. we... We can't rely on any help from those other places. Those places are not safe. We're all we have here. Yeah. Again, a major part of the manifesto, the propaganda portion of the story. It's it's motivated by a line of thinking that like if you encourage or allow this idea that, oh, we really need to look to other people because, you know, maybe things will be better if we go somewhere else. It's kind of taking focus away from the task at hand, which mm -hmm. is we have to look to ourselves and like try to establish a strong foundation here. I don't think that Thomas would be averse to if things got to a secure enough like state of being within America of like reaching out and establishing like a wider, like unified global effort to kind of keep the globe safe from further infection. If there were win uh, windows in other parts of the world, he absolutely would be motivated to go elsewhere. But the task at hand right now is to establish a solid foundation here because if they're unfocused in that, then it's it's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain if I agree with your association there, but that involves a lot of outside information that yeah. long-time viewers have and new-time viewers don't. Toby suggested that I might cut that last comment, but most of our audience knows exactly what we're talking about. And as new viewers come along... I'm happy to let the idea of it percolate in their mind. Because the whys and wherefores of Arlington's opinions and goals will play out over many, many books and are complicated enough that we're not actually giving anything away by keeping it in. We'll get into it eventually. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. that that's, that's an interesting talking point, but we'll save that for another time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the greater concern is that He's trying to cut off as many avenues of reason as to, like, why we shouldn't all work together. And mm. as we already know from Secret Rooms, all these compelling reasons aren't necessarily going to be enough for people to not want their freedom. Because that was kind of the whole thing that was going on with Mary Sampson and her entire group of people. They heard the entirety of the cartographer's handbook. And they still weren't necessarily willing to go along with Thomas Arlington's view for America because they didn't trust him or they didn't trust the government or they just ne didn't necessarily feel like having to cede that much power to people that they'd never met was going to be a good long-term strategy for them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, even as... 
the handbook is trying to encourage people to towards some sort of specific outcome, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to achieve its desired goal. Thomas is asking so much from them, asking them to devote their lives to a cause that may they may or may not be convinced will provide the security for the ones that they care about. Mm. Kartokov's Handbook is a curious book because mm. I think we've gone on record many times before to say why Let Them Go works as an introduction to New Century. So that leaves Kartokov's Handbook's original purpose sort of in limbo. Mm. But it's kind of a codex for how the world of the reunified states of America exists. You know, it gives you like the state of things, the means by which people can get around and survive. So in many ways, it's kind of like a, here's the setting, here's the notes on it. But it's also this kind of statement of, here's what we want to achieve moving forward. So Mm -hmm. you could read it as, here's what our main cast, our heroes are trying to do in New Century. And then it's only when you actually go from that introduction to like, how things are and actually step into the world of new century that you see oh it's not actually quite as simple as that it Mm -hmm. there are people who aren't necessarily gelling with that and it's not even the antagonists or the villains of the piece it's people who you sympathize with who are very like who have admirable qualities of their own Mm -hmm. and it then recontextualizes cartographer's handbook as a very biased introduction to this world or at least an introduction with a very deliberate and intense motivation behind Mm -hmm. it yeah it's got goals it has Mm. it's not like the goals are laudable Mm. wouldn't you want to protect as many lives as possible don't you want to care for your communities don't you want to try and return to the ideals that this country was founded on, which is everybody working together in harmony to create a better whole, to create a more perfect union, as certain documents would say. And like everything, it all depends on, do you agree with not just the goals, but the means by which they want to achieve such goals? And in a more reasonable world, in a more stable world then you can have long drawn out arguments about these kind of things and come to conclusions but this is an apocalypse and so therefore thomas is more framing the cartographer's handbook in that we are the only government that remains this is what we're planning to do and we need to achieve it so we are going to try to convince you as best we can but whether or not you are convinced still going to have to lay down some kind of rigidity in order to ensure that you come back into the fold one way or another Mm. Uh, and again we'll get more into some of those aspects later on Mm. but rounding out the hand you know the i want to get back to your point but the more we go into this, the more I am struck by Kartokov's handbook on the surface feels like because it's this sort of textbook, it's this setting introduction that 
in theory, you think it's going to be light on characters or characterization. Mm. But the more we find ourselves going, okay, well, we'll have to get back to that later because it's actually kind of an exploration of the character or it touches on like kind of revealing more about them. It gives us material for us to infer things about characters. It's making me realize that there is a lot more to this book that is about its characters, that it Mm. is about characterization as much as it is about setting establishment. And I Mm. think that that's not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. It's kind of saying that the setting is the characters. And after this many books of New Century, I think that that's absolutely the case. It is very much built and maintained by the strength of its characters. I mean, it's certainly true that any story kind of lives or dies by the subjects and the objects that are part of it and that make us feel things and that we follow the goals and quests and desires and lives of. So from a certain standpoint, you know, different stories are going to be framed differently in terms of what they choose to focus on. but it needs to have some aspect to it that we can not necessarily sympathize with, but that we can relate to at the Mm. very least that gives us a reason to be interested in what happens. You can come up with the most intriguing world possible, but you still need people to inhabit it and navigate it and have lives inside of it. You know, so yes, the handbook sets up the world, but it needs the people living in it in order to feel like a world that we can invest ourselves in. Yeah, that sells you on the idea that people are living here, that there are people who are developing in response to what is going on in this world. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that's going on in this world is Mm -hmm. specifically the introduction of supernatural phenomenon. Again, as established in... Well, okay. As hinted at, at the very end of Secret Rooms, because this is one of those things that would qualify as a stinger in a movie or whatever, there was the implication that there was another wind door somewhere the thing that Greta opened up in front of James and Abigail. And because this was technically the first book that was ever published, Windors have been a part of this narrative from the very beginning. But it's the thing that shows us that there is something going on beyond simply a sickness came from somewhere and is turning people into feral monsters. Because the idea of a quote-unquote zombie plague is something that exists in a lot of different stories, but there mm. isn't usually a supernatural component to it. It's it, just weird biology or something like that. Yeah, and in recent years, the idea of like an explanation for the cause of this outbreak or the origin point or like some sort of explanation being needed has kind of fallen by the wayside because... Yeah it's so universal that it's kind of taken as a given of like, okay, sure, got it. So it's actually kind of a bit odd now when you do see examples where it actually says, okay, here's the origin point. Here's Mm -hmm. where it comes from. 
that's why you're able to go through the whole book and kind of like it'll be at the back of your mind of like okay what's caused this but it's nevertheless something that you go along with and it's not distracting that you don't know where it comes from because Mm -hmm. you know the conventions you're able to go along with it but at the end it gives you something that implies something far different to the conventions of the genre that you believed this was up to this point and you're suddenly like wait what we're like this doesn't this feels a bit different or it Mm -hmm. opens things up beyond this zombie survival narrative that we thought we were going with for the time being yeah you're right that a lot of stuff involving zombies often they don't go into where it originally came from one of the biggest one of course being the walking dead and of course all of the stuff that romero ever did that includes zombie narratives it's people surviving the zombie apocalypse and not so much on where the zombie apocalypse actually came from. Mm. There are stories that diverge from this idea, such as 28 Days Later, which specifically does show an origin point for that sickness. And in that particular case, the reason why that's there is that it's in order to differentiate. Our zombies are different from the zombies you're used to. Our zombies run and are feral rather than are simply shambling dead that have a need to feed they're behaving like dead things rather than like predators Mm. like the wendigo do like the infected in in 28 days later do but even in that story it has a scientific biological component to it Mm. here we're heading back to some of the older stories of in theory where the undead came from like, you know, the idea of vampires or ghouls or like some of the other names that they literally come up with for the Wendigo, goblins, that whole thing, saying, oh, oh, what if there is actually a supernatural component to this rather than a scientific component to this? That's what the existence of the Windors lead on to, basically. And as the story continues especially since we've already had the experience of the orbs and the powers that they bestow, as well as some of the magics in Tiger's Eye, there is going to be more supernatural stuff. But, you know, considering some of the things that we talked about earlier about some of the new technologies and the sort of steampunk aesthetic to them, that doesn't mean we aren't going to go in the other direction either. Hmm. Yes, exactly. Well, we've got a multiverse here. We can go in. We can go in both directions. We call this podcast through the window for a reason. We <laughs> tend to we tend to make use of these things. We tend to stay in the locations that we go through to. Yeah, exactly so. And here's where I get to steal Toby's thunder by saying the thing that he usually says and forgot this time. We will open many boxes. So, now that we've gone over all the individual components of the handbook, I asked you a number of questions uh, as a part of our outline for this this session, and you wrote me some very detailed answers, which I will contribute to as we go They're along. They're the only answers I know how to give, Greg. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Uh, it's not like there aren't people that are going to be interested in listening to 
very detailed thoughts on the subject. Mm. That's kind of the only ones that we provide for both of us to a certain degree. Greg, ask me a yes-no question. All right. Do you think that Arlington's commitment to seemingly total transparency regarding the challenge they face helps or harms his stated goals? Well, of course, answers will tend towards yes and no as it depends on the recipient. Yes, it will make folks like Abigail and James respect the honesty a bit more and be more committed to the cause. That kind of transparency is also Annie when she gives Catherine an honest answer when Catherine asks a hard question. And I think that helped her make her case that honesty does actually win the day in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think the handbook optimistically hopes for what Arlington would consider the reasonable recipient, someone who will listen and hear his point of view and agree it's the logical conclusion to make who might not have had all the information up till now and says, yes, I love this plan. I'm very excited to be a part of it. But I love that. Like when you specifically wrote that, I was hearing that specifically in uh, Venkman's voice from Ghostbusters. I know. <laughs> and they're having that conversation while being like, there's a very slim chance that this plan could work. And he's all like, I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's go for it. Yeah. Why do you think I wrote it in that way? Yeah. And here is where I feel the need to relate this all back to modern conversations on similar ideologies to the one that Thomas Arlington is working from. I recently listened to an episode of the series Innuendo Studios did on the alt-right playbook, which is an amazing series of videos, and I highly recommend that you listen to them. But here is a relevant clip from the one called Always a Bigger Fish, link in the show notes. See, when you talk to your conservative friend, you operate as though you have the same base assumptions. Belief in democracy, do unto others, etc., etc. If you didn't believe your friend shared these assumptions, you'd basically be calling him a fascist or a sadist. And you conclude that if you believe in democracy, you must believe in equality. And if you believe in equality, you must believe in equal access to education. And must conclude that governments should help pay tuition. And so you give your friend the benefit of the doubt that if he doesn't understand this very simple logical progression, he either hasn't had it properly explained to him, or has at some point been lied to. Because no one could believe in all citizens are equal and always a bigger fish at the same time. But by this thinking, you're treating most conservatives as people who want in their hearts to be liberals, but have so far failed. And maybe that's why they think liberals are condescending? What if he doesn't have the same base assumptions as you? Or what if he does, but he has other assumptions you aren't aware of that lead him to different conclusions? He is often misinformed, but what if that isn't the problem? What if he actually believes something else? From here, I'll return us to the original conversation. Because as Toby gets into, Arlington knows there are people who do believe something different and are unconvincible but keep some of these ideas in the back of your mind as we keep talking. And as we start to see events play out, not only in Arlington, but also in books later in Phase 1 and Phase 2. What Arlington can't control, but acknowledges in one of the last chapters, is that this information can and will reach ears that belong to people who 
not only don't agree with this manifesto, but spiritedly oppose it. In those cases, the transparency is going to confirm the biases of these people. Sometimes the people who oppose it aren't even narrow-minded people either, as we see with Samson in New Athens in secret rooms. When presented with honest information, which we ought to note was not at the time present in the current edition of the handbook, about the background of its author, she explicitly said she was more concerned due to the fire she suspected lay in the director's heart. Mm. So on the whole, I think that the transparency probably runs into more problems than helps, unfortunately. In other circumstances, Arlington and others involved in this handbook's construction could have presented the same policies in a way that was more palatable to the unconverted, making concessions or omitting certain non-essential details in order to get them on side. But the point is that the handbook is a manifesto stating what future they are working towards. And part of that future is transparency and faith in their fellow man and woman. Practically, the half-truth may have been more helpful, but as a foundation for what America could be, this transparency makes this government seem committed to open communication. In response to all of that, first of mm. all, that... And I'd like it to be on the record that you asked me a yes-no question, and I gave you a yes, but it was a very involved yes. Yeah, see, that's the exact thing. That That is... That is exactly the response that I was going to make there, is that you told me, knowing what you were going to say, because again, these were the thoughts that you wrote out months ago now, you told me to ask you a yes or no question, and you knew that your response was going to be way more complicated than a yes or no would actually encapsulate. But it was technically, it did include a yes. Yeah. Or yeah. a no. So. <laughs> or both. Let it never be said that I don't fulfill the criteria in my ramblings. Yeah, is there anything wrong with answering a yes or no question with both yes and no? I've I, well, I will answer that options. in this essay. I will. You've included all the options. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I played in a death metal band. People either loved us or they hated us or they thought we were okay. I think it's actually all of that is pretty cogent overall and. Mm. The irony is, is that, you know, based on what we now have uh, and our deconstruction of a little bit, just based on how we feel about what's on the page and how we've seen it play out in secret rooms, the amusing synchronicity there is that this very conversation is going to be a part of Arlington. But again, we'll get to that when we get to it. So let's move on to question number two. I mean, this is what season openers are all about, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, non-binary folks, is that we always have to set up things so that, you know, you can look forward to things later on in the season. You know, we have to set up all these tantalizing promises and we'll fulfill <laughs> them. Or we won't, you know. <laughs> we'll keep I mean... you guessing. We'll, we'll we'll try and fulfill them, but, you know, it may be months later and maybe we've forgotten about it. So, yes, let me move on to the second question. It's fine. You can say, oh, they completely forgot about this plot thread. Come on, man. I've, I've tried to do this lead in twice and you've interrupted me both times with something I'm sorry. else. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
That's fine. I thought Mephisto would be part of it. (laughs) Okay, fine. Great. Now, this entire section right here is just going to go right into uh, the outtakes here. So, well done. You've created more content. I'm sorry. All right. Here's the second question. It was Agatha all along. I'm done. I'm done. I'm sorry. (laughs) Mr. Toby just completely shooting from the hip here. Uh, (laughs) All right. Hi, Maureen. (laughs) And after all that joking interruption, which I decided to leave in because I'm the editor and I get to pick what to keep in the flow and what to extract, then apparently the sound file cut out. So now I have to re-add the question back in in post. Moving back to the scheduled content, the next question I posed is thus. Do we think the order in which the handbook provides information helps make Arlington's arguments compelling? I believe so. I I mean, Arlington is breaking his own words up throughout the book by having a wide range of accounts from Americans from, from varying backgrounds. Soldiers and fighters on the front lines, people from cities, people from isolated communities, even someone who expresses sentiment that he would find deeply objectionable, you know, Maggie Struthers, Mm. all in order to engage the reader, to cast that net wide and to draw them in with personal stories. This is not a book primarily from a government. This is a book from the people of America at least that's the picture that Arlington is trying to paint with it. It's evidence of a unified front that already exists and asks that people not get in on the ground level, but get in on something that's already going. It engages by showing people continuously and consistently throughout, and not just Arlington and his government. Yeah, I would say overall I definitely agree with that assessment of how things go on and again it's you know whose idea it was to include things in what order may very well have been arlington working in concert with someone else cough cough name begins with s i I would i would agree that overall that name doesn't begin with an s It was me all along, you fuckos! <laughs> I'll keep this meme going as long as I can. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. So yes, generally wholeheartedly agree that as much as we're focusing on the on manifesto... The Mephisto? Toby, yeah. Toby I, I love you to pieces, but... This is the kind of conversation that can only end in a gunshot. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> As much as we were responding to this from the point of a manifesto as being part of what we're talking about now, on some levels, it's almost difficult to actually divide up between the facts and the goals and separate that from the actual accounts, because clearly it's, they're meant to work together as a cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the other aspects. First of all, you already mentioned talking a little bit about the choice to include accounts from problematic sources. And we'll talk more about those individuals when we get to the actual personalities. But one of the things about the cartographer's handbook in particular is 
more use of the N-word than in any of the other books of New Century. It pops really? up here and there. Yeah. I, I, it's not like I did a head count or anything like that, but more or less in a lot of the other stories, it pops up maybe once and will often devolve into other less well-known and loaded slurs along the way. But the N-word is just like one of those, it's sort of like at the at the peak of problematic content as far as discourse is concerned. And the Cartographer's Handbook has it a lot. Sometimes from the mouths of those problematic people and sometimes voiced by Arlington himself. And the question that I ask you is, does repeated use of this word harm the overall goal of the handbook, both from an in-universe standpoint and from a meta-narrative standpoint? The use of the N-word is hard, but like the tone of cartographers, it's a transparently honest depiction of the thoughts of a sadly not insubstantial portion of America at this time. It's harsh, shocking and ugly to us, the modern reader, and to a number of people within the world of New Century as well, I imagine, but the frankness of it does show a universality to what this national event has done to people, no matter which side of the most recent national conflict they fell on. It's an effort to show, both within the narrative and outside it, an optimistic hope that people can come together on this, even if they weren't able to come together before. And while we can't nor should forgive usage of the N-word, the accounts it appears in shows the misjudgment of those who use it. The Wendigo that attacked Maggie's community was not a black man, but a white soldier or officer, showing how susceptible to the plague all men are, no matter their ethnicity or pre-existing station. And the man who questions Arlington's judgment is presented as short-minded and expressing things counter to the betterment of the country, according to the handbook's logic. So, while its inclusion is a way of bringing in and representing everyone across America, I think it's likely that the particular accounts that feature people of this disposition were selected to hint at the editor's distaste of the word. Mm. Yeah. You're right that the framing is particularly important. It's made maybe a little bit more complicated because at one point it's actually used by one of the current cartographers. It's an account that was taken relatively recently, I believe, but it was one of the stories that was included as part of the past. And he directly uses the word in order to describe those past events, even though he is also trying to say, hey, this is what happened, and it was horrible, and I don't agree with it. But he still name-checks a pretty horrible slur, so it sort of sits in between the two as being like, this is somebody that's currently a member of the RSA's armed forces of the chosen people trying to protect America, and he still chose to use that word when he could have used one more neutral or whatever. 
And here I want to take a moment to correct and clarify my assertions in the original recording. Obviously, we'll talk more about Private Henry Jackson and his story in our review of all the Dramatis Personae of the handbook, but on review, I determined that his account was taken in 1878, about five years after the first outbreak, and the current year being another five years on from that written account. So, his words were not as recent as some of those in the book, taken at or close to 1882. Moreover, it's not clear whether or not he was an official scout, as he only talks about speaking with the scouts, and therefore those that would actually be cartographers, rather than merely an RSA soldier. Based on the timeline that I've put together thanks to several details, the notion of the new RSA army would have definitely existed by 1878, and in fact, so would the NIA itself as Arlington was brought into the confidence of President Grant in July of 1876 as regards the formation of his new agency. So, Jackson could have either been a regular soldier or a scout. The only reason I responded especially strongly at time of recording was the overall idea that any man or woman picked to be a member of the NIA would be of a certain character, and would know better than to use such a word. Meanwhile, given the need for all men and women to contribute what they could to the war effort, requirements would be less strict for the general army. At the end of the day, I suppose it doesn't actually matter what station Jackson had within the ranks of the army, but as someone who knows how important the right words are in communication, I will always tend to think less of someone that does not pick their words carefully even when saying something that is to the benefit of something right and good. So, mm. yeah, it, 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 it exists in this weird in-between place. Could it be that the rest of the account he gave was very useful to what he, like, what Arlington wanted to deliver with the cartographer's handbook, but it went against his intentions? He didn't want to like replace the words and like edit it, it mm. because that would run counter to the idea of transparency so i don't think he would have been happy with this agent using that word just to like describe individuals in an account mm. but i think it was an unfortunate casualty of him wanting to use this excerpt and include it I mean, it could it could be both, honestly. It could mm. well be that the reason why this story was included was specifically to encourage a certain mode of thinking, but that the use of a word that the listeners might have no problem with using was a way to draw sympathy from them as well. Mm. It's, hard, it's hard to say. I think it's it's capable of being more than one thing at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Honestly, my bigger issue with it, because we were talking about this not just from an in-universe perspective, part of the question was from a net, from a meta-narrative perspective yeah. as well. Yeah. We talked about how the word came up in Secret Rooms, the one time that it was used in that flashback, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why I sort of highlighted that Cartographer's Handbook 
uses the n-word as often as it does is that in a piece of text that is perhaps your mileage may vary a little bit more palatable but put into an audio drama this means that repeatedly in particular because this was during the early days when alex had a small cast and they were all white this means that a lot of white people are giving voice to that word even though it's in a fictional context and that perhaps makes things a little less it doesn't feel great i guess you could say even if the context is understandable overall even if the the situation and the reason why arlington included it as part of the handbook is sort of a little bit part and parcel of why alex included it as being part of the narrative mm. you, you can sort of get it it just doesn't yeah it, it it still feels problematic to have it used again and again. And it's kind of why I'm happier in later books that it doesn't come up nearly as often, I guess you could say. When talking about this stuff, I appreciate that the use of period-appropriate slurs in movies or television is perfectly valid. Even putting aside movies that are specifically about race... I recently rewatched The Green Mile, wherein the N-word is used more than once by people that we are not expected to sympathize with at all. One of my favorite shows, Deadwood, uses numerous kinds of slurs, including the N-word, over the course of its three seasons. But then I look at a particular episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which created a story reason for the characters of the show to be in America in 1953. And while that story directly tackles race relations at that time, they also take pains for the word to be used only once, and for it to be said by a black character to make a point. There are, I feel, ways to be honest about the world without belaboring the point and trying to be sensitive as much as possible. But let me be clear, bringing this up is meant to be a reflection on how the book made me feel, and might also make others feel. I don't bring these topics up to condemn, especially when Toby and I are on the record as being major fans that are also secure in our love of New Century. I just also always feel I have to highlight when parts of a story make me feel uncomfortable, as well as relief that future novels use this word much more strategically. I think that it's hard to sort of make a final statement on it, because mm -hmm. I think that, like, on the one hand, it's something where you can see the argument of this is kind of, like, almost intended to be like a historical text, like you mm -hmm. have found this and it's representing a state of a nation at a particular moment. And so having this kind of contributes to that un like understanding of, okay, yeah, wow, this is definitely a different time. But I think that I agree that like, just because that's the case, just because something's intended to like, elicit this reaction of like nope it doesn't sort of stop the fact that we still 
feel it that we're mm. put into this situation so i i can't really make a statement other than what you've basically suggested which is that one way or the other whether it's like something that was needed or justified or like i mean that's such a sort of like loaded term to use like do we justify usage of this word but in either way i'm glad that its presence is limited in the future and that when it comes up it is basically like i'm sure i've used this example before but how in each season of bojack basically they would only say the word fuck once and it would always be to saved to carry the most weight and i think that with that it's it's not like they choose good god i like would hate any series where like they have to say it once per book but when it's appropriate that it's sort of referred to to sort of show the utter black heart that or the evil heart rather uh at this it's I, I regret using uh, the word black to describe evil no, yeah. hatred towards that's already specifically like... black people and it's something that i mean we've used that quotation from muhammad ali of talking about like observations of why everything is associated with that there like what toby is referring to is comments that ali made during interviews regarding language about how the color black is used as a signifier for bad things and white is used as a signifier for good things i first heard this argument during a scene in the movie malcolm x but here's a sound clip from the greatest himself that some of you might have already heard. And everything was white. Santa Claus was white. And everything bad was black. The little ugly duckling was a black duck. And the black cat was the bad luck. And if I threaten you, I'm going to blackmail you. <laughs> I said, Mama, why don't they call it white mail? They lie too. <laughs> I, will, I was always curious. And then and <laughs> this is when I knew something was wrong. My point is that it's something which shows a poison. It's a poison where the word embodies that. Mm -hmm. and It's already it's, part of our lexicon, is the thing, yeah. is that we would have to make a concerted effort in a modern context to choose different words. And, you know, I think that there are people out there that are definitely trying to do that kind of thing. But, you know, it actually took me a while to train myself away from using certain sexual terms as insults as regards to women, even as something as simple as the B word, say, uh, which I tried to like, I'm not going to use that word anymore in reference to women, because while it, it doesn't quite have the same weight as other words it's one that's used a lot and i'd rather push myself in the direction of not using vocabulary like that and when you start talking about words that aren't actually loaded but that have that that show a general tendency towards associating an aspect of a certain kind of people in a purely cosmetic aspect as having a negative connotation, you know, that's how insidious these kinds of things mm. become. It diminishes the person that is being labeled as such. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, in the 
to put it very subdued, but even subdued curses or like language like that, like mm -hmm. what you're talking about there, which I think is generally like, oh, that doesn't sound all that bad in the grand scheme of things, is very much about saying that this person fits within the category that this word is associated with, which can, as you say, it sort of like diminishes and it's a good tendency to not take the shortcut to diminish that person even when they are being assholes or stuff like that it's just you can use the word asshole it's not oh, yeah it's not gendered it's not associated with their race uh mm. and you can use other words like that even if mm. you know you could go a, a little bit further and try to use more not necessarily diplomatic but more empathetic words and everything like that but you know then again let's think about all of the assholes that are currently making life very difficult for us right now and realize that sometimes there are just people out there that you need to fucking curse out oh yeah so as we're continuing related topics the next question that i put to you um, when we were pondering the various aspects of the structure of cartographer's handbook as manifesto was do the in-universe accounts provide enough empathy which is not necessarily quite the right word because empathy is definitely an aspect that goes throughout cartographer's handbook it's an effort so to it, unify so i think the book is very specifically set up to have multiple accounts of people that you can empathize with to kind of almost bring people together right exactly but in this case, I think the point that I was trying to get at was the stories that are provided, like they give insights into the character, but they all tend to be very bleak accounts to a certain extent or like functional mm. accounts in places. And my question was, do these voices and what they give to the handbook is that enough to help counteract the growing despair of the situation and of the overall goals that Arlington is trying to promote through use of this book? Like, because you have to imagine that the communities that the cartographers are trying to find at this juncture they have, as, as you pointed out not too long ago, they have survived this long. So mm. they are managing to sustain themselves enough that they are functioning communities. And now mm. someone is coming along and suddenly, through the cartographer's handbook, asking them to give more to sort of like, cause a bit of an imbalance in terms of like what they are a their ability to self-sustain mm. and you know it it's... maybe it would be easier if the handbook had more positivity in it it's but asking those, yeah. people to give before this unified government that they're selling these people on has a chance to actually do anything for them yeah uh, like exactly yeah. And I do realize there that Arlington understands this idea. In point of fact, it's a talking point in the handbook itself. 
as to how cartographers are meant to handle first contact and show respect to people that manage to keep together. What I'm specifically asking is if, in Toby's opinion, the written accounts work well enough towards that goal of convincing. So it is important to act, to actually bring some hope to, is there enough hope to counteract the dark, I think is mm-hmm. something, yeah. a apt uh, question you put in the notes. So I don't think that can be quantified by people just putting this book together. It evidently is trying to achieve that through, you know, the accounts of Tabitha, Annie, Catherine, and shoot, let me uh, check my notes to see who the Scottish uh, cartographer voiced by Sharon is. That's, uh, I am actually drawing a blank. Uh, you remember is... what story they were Harriet telling? Blaine. Harriet Blaine. Oh, okay. It's about the uh, cannibals. Uh, the, the, I was oh, thinking right. it was... Oh, the, right. Yeah. The accounts from the field. Right, exactly. I mm. did write her name down as mm. something I definitely wanted to visit when we started talking about the individual stories themselves, mm. but yes. But, you know, it, its purpose is very much to kind of, as much as that is a dark, like, that in a microcosm is kind of like an attempt of bringing hope to counteract the dark, because this is a case of people encountering something that at the time is pretty much the definition of ungodly. It's just mm-hmm. this, like, horrific thing to consider. And I was thinking about this on re-listening, that I don't know if the solution that they would have given is the sort of thing that everyone who would be listening to this would necessarily agree with. There would be some who might actually hear the decision that they reached of, you know, actually putting them to work, saving people's lives, and actually be incensed that they didn't, you know, execute these people. And mm-hmm. I that's not a judgment for me, that's just me making assumptions of what some might judge these people of. Yeah, different people are going to have different hot buttons. Exactly. But the end point of it is that some good came out of it. It is actually kind of a prototype for the arc we see in Secret Rooms with Carl, our favourite character in all of New Century, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and how he is, you know, he's not like quite as severe position this is a difficult thing because i i don't know if i can actually make a comment on my own personal stance on cannibalism in desperate times i don't know Mm -hmm. if i really have enough of a sort of i think the fact that i don't have a ready answer speaks to the fact that it's not necessarily a hot button for me but in terms of like the reaction of the people abigail is saying I can't believe you're actually going to trust these people. You should put a bullet in them. And then later on is saved by these people because they were given a second chance. That's pretty much the exact same thing. And it's sort of highlighted by the fact that it's voiced by Sharon. Harriet Blaine had that impulse, but she didn't follow through with it. And as a result, one of those people was around to save her leg. And she remembers that and carries that with her. Toby actually kind of highlights something fairly important that we might have jumped over too quickly back in Secret Rooms. We joke about how much we love Virgil and Carl, but the simple truth is that, regardless of what risk Annie took in trying to recruit them, she was also essentially offering amnesty to whatever crimes they might have committed up till then in order to survive. 
and the story of Harriet Blaine suggests that because the larger goal is the survival of the entire species of humanity on this continent, that previous acts that would be considered crimes worthy of punishment, even moral crimes, are mitigated in favor of that larger goal. The message is potentially that nothing is too unforgivable, provided you are willing to make amends and work together now. It's a message of what modern people would call restorative justice, and it is a positive component worthy of consideration. Of course, as we get into Arlington, that willingness to forgive has limits. But moving on. All these stories are very much explicitly entreating the reader to keep hope alive, but then most of the stories can be argued to have a hopeful edge to them, even the ones that end in tragedy. There's a feeling that using these stories to provide knowledge for people to use in the future, Wendigo Bites, The Clementine, these are stories that speak of an ongoing fight that isn't over. So, yes, you can't ever say for certain if there is enough hope for every inhabitant of America to not fall into despair after being confronted with the wider reality of the country. Like I said, the story with the cannibals might actually incense some listeners rather than Mm -hmm. inspire some listeners, but it is nevertheless a concerted effort to inject hope into people who desperately need it. Mm -hmm. Certainly by providing a plan these aren't just sort of anecdotal stories. Like what a, percentage a, of a plan do you have? <laughs> I don't know, 11%? <laughs> also, I think the quote was 12%. I don't, I don't even remember now. Well, it's fine. We'll leave the, well, actually, Wendigo fans in the dust. Yeah, exactly. If Thomas is the one that is bringing this is what we need to do in order to rebuild, to to keep hope alive, to make sure that we can survive the further oncoming storm, so to speak. Because just because you survived this long, the danger itself is not over. The stories are meant to share the human experience of what has come before and what is evolving around us, basically. And it tries very hard not to be self-editing, I guess. Hmm. I don't know what, what choices were made in terms of why the stories that were chosen were chosen, other than the fact that, at least in a couple of cases, such as Catherine Holloway talking about the experience of Weirwood, that's sort of placed front and center and Mm. meant to be an indication of a time of not unbridled triumph, but of... Success in the face of great adversity. Yeah, exactly. Even as she details the personal sacrifice that she experiences uh, with the loss of Beauregard and everything like that. Like, it's Mm. not... It's hard to tell stories of the new landscape of America without getting into the darkness, just as Harriet Blaine's story gets into, just as Tabitha Charlie's story gets into, where she is literally collecting the bones of the dead and trying to come to terms with how this could have happened 
in a world with a supposedly loving God and everything like that. Mm. Thomas even mentions at one point in the book that he objected to one decision to take information out of the cartographer's handbook because he believed that the people of America are not children, or at least at this time he Mm. says they are not children because he acknowledges that these people have survived, they've endured hardship. And I think that carries with it the awareness that if they gave a book that was just fluff piece after fluff piece, it would ring hollow because that's not the reality that these people have experienced, lived with, and as disconnected as they are from the rest of America, they're not going to be fooled if you say, it's all going to be okay, we'll be it'll all be done by Christmas or anything like that. They have to be confronted with stories that have enough of the hard reality to make the hope that's in them feel earned. As you were saying, the thing I was thinking of was the the whole, the repeated phrase in Shaun of the Dead. Go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Cartographer's Handbook would be a much shorter book if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly so. And going back in time a little bit to... Dude, that's to... not for many, many books down the line. <laughs> Spoiler. So we think. Yeah, exactly. Um... No, I was going to say, returning to secret rooms and those early chapters where Annie and Frank are talking to the people of Weirwood, and she's relating, as a part of her journal, the response of the inhabitants of Weirwood to the first edition of the Cartographer's Handbook. She was saying that uh, she was seeing people's response shifting around the time when they were talking about or whether when she was relating the experience of sergeant Bo travis and how he was criticizing the military response that was happening as the wendigo situation was still unfolding that this was a a southern voice that was you know speaking truth to power so to speak Mm. that they could specifically sympathize with even though he comes to an untimely end and Mm. that Annie in particular is very sensitive to seeing at what point does the fear and hostility that they are so often greeted with start to drop a little bit and the, the, the empathy starts kicking in basically, if not for the cartographers themselves, then for the Southern voices, so to speak, that, give them some common ground to activate said empathy, I guess. Uh, Something occurred to me as you were bringing up the idea that there are multiple editions to the cartographer's handbook and that the version we're seeing in this book is not the first one. I think it's quite remarkable that something that is essentially an in-universe text accomplishes the idea of this world feeling quite alive because it's mm. it's not just that it's providing a snapshot it's showing the world has almost changed even as you've been reading this textbook because mm-hmm. it's showing that since you've been reading the early chapters 
there has been actually maybe more that has happened, which is unusual and uncommon, I think, for something like this that's meant to be kind of a sort of frozen moment in the fictional universe's time. Mm-hmm. It's speaking to the actual goal of the handbook itself, you know, in-universe, as you say, to take in the experiences that have come before and mm. to modify the text, not in terms of editing any parts of it, but by adding to it in ways they can better improve the odds of the handbook getting the response that they want out of it, basically. Yeah, and that's and... That, that's a that's a primary component of specifically Catherine's story. Yeah. That's why it's given the prominent space, and she's allowed to talk about her story almost more than anybody else besides Thomas himself to mm. draw out this this tale that isn't just about the snapshot, as you say, but building a myth. Uh, not a mm. myth is the wrong word, but I mean, you know. Legend. Legend, a, a story of heroism that can boost people up. Mm. You know, I think about um, the role that certain pieces of popular fiction in various forms have been influential in shaping state pride or mm. national pride or just encouraging certain other values that bring everything together. Hamilton, perhaps, being one of the most recent one of those. And I do realize there is also a meta-narrative in Annie Oakley being one of the major characters in New Century, because her mythologized story in our world is immensely popular in exactly this way in certain parts of the U.S., I was always only vaguely aware of her story, being that I never saw Annie get your gun. But I do remember all the way back in our interview with Lareda, how Annie's story was very familiar to her growing up. It occurs to me, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get into the nitty-gritty, there is a quality to her story that is different from everybody else, and that's so noticeable and powerful mm. that it's going to come back in a different form later on when we continue down the road into Steamheart. And it's one of the few stories in the book that actually is allowed to kind of almost tell someone's life story. Mm. A lot of the other ones are about relaying a particular experience this mm -hmm. is the experience of being a bone collector for the rsa this is someone who was recording their last moments and the events that le led up to it as they are slowly turning into a wendigo the or, only other one that comes close to that would be uh, of an extended experience would be towards the end with carmen santos as she is relating a an extended experience of being someone that was receiving messages from the other side of the ocean as to how Europe was falling to the same plague 
right. uh, and completely, you know, experiencing mm. the same infrastructure collapse as America itself. But yeah. also her story for like, you know, this is what I'm going to do now in order to try and make things better on, mm. on my side of the ocean. Mm. But even that is very much a, this is the sort of experience of being this wireless operator, this mm -hmm. person in this position of communications. The only other person that I can think of other than Catherine, who has this feeling of you're seeing their aspirations as a young person, their life before even not just the Wendigo, before the Civil War, and then their time between the Civil War and the Wendigo, and then their response to it, and the extended timeline of initial response and something that happened much later after years of it being something that they had sustained and built upon. That person telling his life story, of course, being the author himself, Thomas Arlington. So that, that actually... We, I think... I think when we start talking about that, I, we may need to mull this over a little bit more, but I find myself wondering if if they were specifically looking for something not just empowering to the audience and myth-making, legend-making, mm. story of heroism, that if they set that early in the handbook and mm. prime people to think about one of their own in this way that mm. it would make it would make it easier for them to accept Thomas's story because mm. that is far more likely to cause to, to ruffle some feathers given mm. the high probability of anti-black sentiment in the south mm. yeah that's right actually and also it's it's not just uh, one of their own in the sense of this is a southern woman who is shown to be exemplary of everything that they are looking to build and to work towards. But this is someone who isn't from the military or from the RSA. This is someone who was approached by cartographers and had this story of what they were able to achieve. And it sort of feels like this is for all the people who have been managing absolutely fine for years without the cartographers showing up, but now has agreed to take part in this effort. And you can see that just by the fact that her story is present in the book. So I think that there is, I think you're right, that it is important that they provide a sudden voice that is shown to be someone who is part of this and they might be more engendered to what the rest of the book has to say. But I think it's also wider than that. It's anyone who isn't part of this government effort is also taking part in this. I just find my the, the, the gears are churning in my head at this point, and I, I'm going to need to let this stew for a little bit as I ponder um, mm. the significance of all of this. But yeah, no, this is... I mean, um, this is good food for, for thought, so to speak. Especially when we get more into character in our next sort of segment of mm -hmm. cartographers, because when I made that connection between Catherine and Thomas, without going into detail of spoilers for later books, but I think that is 
quite important because there is, I think, a connection between the two that you see play out as the series plays out. A similarity of character, you might say. Hmm, exactly. <laughs> to be as vague as possible. Um, yes. Sure, all right. The next they occupy similar roles. <laughs> and honestly, I couldn't end on a better note than that. Because the juxtaposition of Thomas's story and Catherine's story is definitely going to be important for later in our deconstruction, as well as further and further down the road in the following novels of New Century, as we coyly alluded to. To close us out for this week, I was suddenly running into another one of those moments where I did not have a song immediately in mind. It's made more complex by the fact that the part of the story we're talking about now is all about construction and theme rather than character, which is what I fall back on if the subject matter doesn't speak to a certain song from my past. The more I searched, the more I found songs that would be good for parts of Arlington or other moments, but not for what we specifically were discussing today. I reached out to Toby and then Maureen to see if the hive mind could come up with something that worked. And what I finally rested on was a piano cover of a song that Maureen came up with that I thought had a good tonality. So until next time, this is an instrumental cover of Alan Walker's Faded. <laughs>